2 Kings 7, if you don't have a handout, there's some in the front or in the back. It's a little longer tonight than usual because we are reading a lot of scripture. And the reason is, is because it's a very, very interesting story. And I didn't feel like there was any little bits that we could leave out so that we could fully understand it, okay? Now, to set up the scene, to help you understand what's happening in chapter 7, I need to tell you a little bit about chapter 6. It's been a minute since we, when we, since we were just in chapter six. And let me explain what is, because what we're looking at today is the second half of the story. Now, remember what happened in chapter six, that the Aramean army had come in and laid siege to Samaria. And so they had put this blockade around it and there was no food that could go in and no food that could come out. And because of that, the little food they had was incredibly expensive And maybe you can remember this, the king was taking a tour around the city and a lady reached out to him and said, will you help us? And they were arguing over this. She said that one of the ladies here with me, we had this truce that we would boil my son today and eat my son and then we would boil their son tomorrow and eat their son. And what she was mad about and distraught over was not the fact that they had just boiled their son to eat them, but that the neighbor had hidden her child so that they could not do it with hers. I mean, it was terrible to see what was happening. It was a time and a place of absolute hopelessness and absolute despair. And I don't know if you remember this, but we talked about how this hopelessness and this despair that we can face sometimes in our lives drive us to do terrible things. I'll tell you today, today's story is a lot better because today's story is about hope. It's the other half of it to see what it is that God does in this time of absolute despair and absolute hopelessness. So with that being said, let's look at chapter seven and we're going to read the whole chapter. Says Elisha replied, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow at Samaria's gate, six quarts of fine flour will sell for a half ounce of silver, and twelve quarts of barley will sell for half an ounce of silver. Then the captain, the king's right hand man, responded to the man of God, Look, Even if the Lord were to make windows in heaven, could this really happen? Elisha announced, you will in fact see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. Now four men with a skin disease were at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why just sit here until we die? If we say, let us go into the city, we will die there because the famine is in the city. But if we sit here, we will also die. So now, come on, let's surrender to the Aramean's camp, and if they let us live, we will live, and if they kill us, we will die. So the diseased men got up at twilight to go to the Aramean's camp, and when they came to the camp's edge, they discovered that no one was there, for the Lord had caused the Aramean camp to hear the sound of chariots, horses, and a large army. The Arameans had said to each other, the king of Israel must have hired the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to attack us. So they had gotten up and fled at twilight, abandoning their tents, horses, and donkeys. The camp was intact, and they had fled for their lives. When these diseased men came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent to eat and drink. Then they picked up the silver and gold and clothing and went off and hid them. They came back and entered another tent, picked things up and hid them. Then they said to each other, we're not doing what is right. Today is a day of good news. 
If we are silent and wait until morning light, our punishment will catch up with us. So let's go tell the king's household. The diseased men came and called the city's gatekeepers and told them, We went to the Aramean camp and no one was there, no human sounds. There was nothing but tethered horses and donkeys and the tents were intact. The gatekeepers called out and the news was reported to the king's household. So the king got up in the night and said to to his servants, let me tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we will take them alive and go into the city. But one of his servants responded, please let messengers take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their fate is like the entire Israelite community who will die. So let's send them and see. The messengers took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them after the Aramean army, saying, Go and see. So they followed them as far as the Jordan, and they saw that the whole way was littered with clothes and equipment the Arameans had thrown off in their haste. The messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the Aramean camp, and it was then that six quarts of fine flour sold for half an ounce of silver and 12 quarts of barley sold for a half ounce of silver, according to the word of the Lord. The king had appointed the captain, his right-hand man, to be in charge of the city gate, but the people trampled him in the gate, and he died just as the man of God had predicted when the king had come to him. When the man of God had said to the king, about this time tomorrow, 12 quarts of barley will sell for half an ounce of silver, and six quarts of fine flour will sell for half an ounce of silver at Samaria's gate. This captain had answered the man of God, look, even if the Lord were to make windows in heaven, could this really happen? And Elisha had said, you will in fact see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat any of it. This is what happened to him. The people trampled him in the city gate and he died. Now I've titled this study that we're going to look at tonight, Surprised by Hope. Because I want you to imagine how surprised everyone was when they came upon this Aramean camp. I mean, you think they have just been under siege for so long that they're even, they're selling the heads of donkeys trying to find something to eat. And now they walk upon this camp and it's full of food, it's full of horses, it's full of gold, it's full of silver. Think about the elation that they had, something that they did not expect at all. But you see, the story is not just about hope, though, but it's about the source of hope. We ask this question, what brings about hope here? The hope is not God's provision. It's not even God's protection right here. There is a source of their hope. And the source of their hope right here is the source of our own hope. And it says it is this. It's God's own word. God's word. And what do we see about his word here is that it proves itself to be faithful and true. Now I want to ask you this question then from this passage. How do we then experience the hope that's found in God's word? How do we experience it? Well, I'll tell you, we've got three ways tonight and it's going to be very simple. First of all, the way you experience the hope found in God's word is you have to first hear it. You've got to hear it. Look what Elisha replied. When all of these bad things are happening in verse one, Elisha replies, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. I want you just for a moment to think about the magnitude of that statement in light of all of the scriptures. Think about that. What do we see the word of the Lord doing throughout the Bible? How about this? 
The entire world is created by the word of the Lord, is it not? God spoke the world into existence. We're told in John chapter one that Jesus is the word and by Jesus the word, the world is created. How about this? We know that it's through the word of the Lord that the nation of Israel began. How? Because the word of God, God himself came to Abraham and he comes to his kids. All this, the nation of Israel was started by the word of the Lord. Or how about this? The good news for us today is that God, his word put on flesh. The word became flesh for us. Or how about this today? His word is also the gospel that is now preached to you and preached to me. This is this word. How do we find hope in the word of the Lord? We find hope in the word in the Lord today because it is full of power and it's full of great promise. Why do we need to hear it today? It's because this that this world can be so loud. Fear can be loud. Our problems can be loud. And oftentimes, if we're not paying attention, the Bible can seem very, very silent. And what we have to make a choice to do is to open our ears to hear it. The question is today, will we hear it? Will we hear the word of the Lord? I recently read a story about Franklin Delano Roosevelt that I just I absolutely loved. If you know, if you're a person in power, um, if you are president, you do a whole bunch of smiling and shaking hands. He got tired of doing that, got tired of smiling and shaking hands because he felt like nobody ever really wanted to listen to him. They just wanted to see him in person. So he decided that one day he was going to do something a little different. He was going to find out if anyone was actually paying attention to him and what he was saying. So he got done making a speech and he went down to everybody and he put on a big smile and began to shake people's hands. And as people came up to him to shake his hand, here's what he said. He goes, he smiled and he said, I murdered my grandmother this morning. <laughs> That's literally what he said. He said, what was interesting though is that people would automatically respond with comments like, how lovely. Or you just keep up that good work, brother. That's, <laughs> that's what they kept saying to him. And over and over again, he realized people weren't actually listening. Every person, I murdered my grandmother this morning is what he would say. Well, finally, um, he said one, a foreign diplomat came up to him and he shook his hand and had a big smile and he said, I murdered my grandmother this morning. And at that point, the foreign diplomat leaned in and very quietly he said, I'm sure he had, she had it coming to her, is what he said to her and then he walked off. Here, here's why I say this. There is nothing louder and more clear and good than the word of the Lord. There's nothing more powerful than the word of the Lord. And so often, maybe you're like me and you wake up in the morning and you're tired, and the, word, and the Bible, reading the word that's in front of you has become just this like routine, and you've worked your way through two chapters, and then you close it, and you go, what in the world did I even just read? You didn't hear any of it. The way in which we're gonna experience hope first for us people is if we make a real decision to open up our ears and hear the word of the Lord. That's the way he starts this. He tells them this, hear it. And then second of all, what do we have to do after we hear it? We then have to believe it. You can't just hear it, you have to also believe it. You see, when, when the captain is told of their deliverance that's going to happen, his response was a sarcastic response. Here's what he says. The captain, the king's right-hand man, responded to the man of God and he said, look, even if the Lord were to make windows in heaven, could this really happen? Remember, at this point in time, they had no food and it was going for very high prices. And he told them that tomorrow, and just tomorrow, what's gonna to happen is food is gonna be really cheap. Grain, barley, 
It's going to cost almost nothing. And he says, there's no possible way. He says, if there was even windows in heaven, you know, if there was even windows in heaven, could this happen? Now, you've got to understand what's going on right here and to understand the language. The Hebrew word that's translated windows right here, it means floodgates, okay? So he's saying, if even if the floodgates were opened in heaven, could this actually happen? He's meaning one of two things. Either he's asking this, is God going to cause a flood that's going to generate a miraculous crop? Or second of all, maybe he's asking this, is God about to start raining flour and barley down from heaven? Well, we can say this, it would not be the first time that bread came from heaven. Am I right? He couldn't understand it. It didn't make sense. You see, it was going to take an Exodus-like miracle for the whole town to be fed, and guess what happens? They get a whole, whole army surplus. They actually get it. Now, I find this interesting in the response that he gives because if we were honest, every one of us, we are naturally skeptical and unbelieving people. We just are. We're like that. And because of this, we often fail to ever believe anyone's predictions about what's going to happen. Uh, my former pastor, um, Tony Morita, he tells a story about his wife's side of the family. They're from Eastern North Carolina as well. And when his, um, when his wife's grandmother was like in her 20s or 30s, before any of the Outer Banks had been built up, their family had an opportunity to buy huge amounts of property on the Outer Banks. And her response was, why in the world would I pay $500 for a bucket of sand? <laughs> was her response. Anybody want to guess what all of that land on the Outer Banks is worth now? <laughs> When Tony Marita's father-in-law often tells this story, he says she was never the biggest visionary of the family, uh, talking about her mom. You, we, just, we often fail to believe it. We fail to believe these really big things that, that might happen. But I ask you this today, church, what is the faith that God requires of us? What is God asking us to believe? He's not asking us just to believe in some random thing. No, no, no. He's asking us to believe his promises. He's asking us to believe that which has been proved, time, proved true time and time again. When we hear the word of the Lord, he's not just saying things that are just random and crazy, just a random action plan. It is his truth and his actions, which is time and time again proved true. Can I give you some promises that we're called to believe in today? These are ones, I know we have the ones we say often in our church, but I want to give you a couple other lists that's worth you memorizing and learning. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? The one who believes in me will live. Jesus says it's true. It's a promise that we hold on to. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Another one that's crazy. If you just call upon the name of the Lord, the promise is that you will be saved. He's not asking for us to believe in anything. He's asking us to believe in his word, the word of the Lord. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For those in Christ, no charge brought against us anymore. Deuteronomy 31, 8. One of my favorites. The Lord is the one who will go before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. And then finally, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 30 and 31, this great promise. 
Youths may become faint and weary, and young men may stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. See, God calls us to believe what he says, even if it sounds crazy, and I'll tell you why. Here's why we can believe in it, is because God has a flawless record of faithfulness. We're not asked to believe in something that is absurd and unheard of. We're asked to believe in the word of the Lord, which is true. How do we find hope in this world? How do we find hope in his word? First, we hear it. Second of all, we have to make a decision to believe it. And then finally, what we're called to do with this very hope is we're called to share it. We're called to share it. The story is very interesting. It shifts from this discussion with, the, um, with Elijah and, and, and the king's man, and it goes to these four lepers. And it says they're sitting outside the city gate. Not only were they the people in the city who had nothing, they're lepers outside the city. They have absolutely nothing. Nothing left to live for. And they're so desperate now that they say, maybe we just go to the Aramean camp. Maybe they'll give us something to eat. And if they don't give us that, They're probably going to kill us, but guess what? We're going to die sitting out here anyways. So they make this journey to the camp, and they come upon the camp, and guess what? There's no one there. Could you imagine what that had to be like? First of all, you're probably looking around to make sure they're not hiding in the bushes, or, well, it's the desert. They're obviously not hiding in the bushes right there, but behind rocks and and all these things. What's going on? And they said they walked into a tent, and they ate some food, and it was good, and then they begin to like any starving person, they, get, they eat and they eat and they eat and then they have nothing and so they start finding all the silver and gold and they go bury it and hide it, right? Who wouldn't do that if you have nothing? But finally their conscience becomes stricken when it becomes nighttime and what do they say? They say this, how in the world can we just keep this here? The punishment for us will be great if we do not go back to the camp and take them this good news that we have been given See, this text, what's interesting about this is that it has been used by missionaries in the past or it's been used to make this missionary appeal, and I will tell you why. This text right here reiterates a central truth of God's mission and our obligation. Here's what it is. Here's, our, here's, here's the truth, that those who know the good news are under an inescapable obligation to pass on that news to those who don't know it. Those who go, know the good news are under an inescapable obligation to pass on those who do not know it. Not only that, it says the very feet of those who bring the good news are beautiful. It brings hope. It brings life. Romans chapter um, 10, verses 14 and 15 says it this way. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. What are we called to do with this? We're called to share this hope. Is anybody here, anybody here from the state of Texas? Anybody? Anybody ever lived in the state of Texas? We got some living in the state of Texas? Texas is a great place. I personally love Texas because it's home of some really good barbecue, and I love barbecue, okay? So uh, nothing like some good Texas brisket, I must say. If you're looking for that around here, Lewis's Barbecue in Greenville, I found it's amazing. So go and check that out. Here's another thing about Texas that they don't necessarily want to talk about often, is that Texas is also a popular destination for survivalists and also cults. If you've been in Texas, you know that to be true. 
In the 80s, this was such a big deal that a company saw this as a very lucrative opportunity, a way to make a lot of money. And if you were there in the 80s, maybe you saw this ad from this company and they claimed this, that they could sell you a year's worth of freeze-dried food for each member of your family. Not only that, here was their promise to to you. They promised that they would deliver your food, um, food supply, in plain, unmarked containers at night under the cover of darkness so that your neighbors would not be aware that you have a stockpile of supplies in your basement or in your bunker or your doomsday place that you, that you have. That's what their claim was. They're making money by selling years' worth of supply, freeze-dried, for them there. Now think about this for a moment. Imagine having a secret storage closet full of food while your neighbors are starving. Now think about this spiritually. Why do we send people all over the world? Why do we train people how to share the gospel? Because you and I, we have been given a stockpile of hope in Jesus and the rest of the world is starving. These people right here, these lepers, Even the outcasts of society realize that they cannot sit here and just hoard this food to themselves. They literally said, we can't hold on to this good news. We have to take it back to the city. The very city that they were not welcomed into, by the way. They were outside the gates. And they take the good news back to the city, the people that are starving. Evangelism has been described as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's true of what we are called to do. We are people who have been given this incredible hope and we're called to share that with the people around us. Brothers and sisters, we don't just hear the word. We don't just believe the word. We are under an obligation to also share the good news of that word to people around us. Finally, before we dismiss today, there's one more thing I wanna show you in this passage and that is this, that this passage demonstrates to us the danger of disbelief. The danger of disbelief. When this man could not understand there'd be any way that God can do this, what did Elisha tell him? He says, you're gonna see it, but you're not gonna taste it. You're gonna die. And sure enough, what do we see at the very end of this passage? He's standing at the gate of the city and as the horde of people run out there to receive the food, he's trampled and he died. There's one central point, I think, of this whole passage and it is this, that God keeps his word. And, he, and his promise for us, his word, the promise is not just for the flourish, flourishing of the saints, but it's also the demise of those who do not believe. You see, there is great danger in not believing the word of the Lord. Why? Because this word comes with great power and great promise. If you choose not to believe, then the promise becomes true there as well. I love how Warren Wiersbe, as I summarize the end, Warren Wiersbe says it this way. He says, to the humble heart that is open to God, the word generates faith. But to the proud, self-centered heart, the word makes the heart even harder. The same sun that melts the ice will harden the clay. It's true. Church, we've got this great hope. And this hope comes through the word that we've been given. So what do we have to do today? We have to make a decision. We, first, we have to hear it. Then we make the decision to believe it. And then finally, we have to make the decision to share it. May that be true of all of our lives. Let's pray together. God, we love you so much and we thank you for your word. This word that created all things, the word that put on flesh, 
the word that has now been preached to us so that we might live. God, let us share this with those around us. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.